Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens Read by Amulet Asimov Chapter 2 For the next 8 to 10 months, Oliver was the victim of a systematic course of treachery and deception. He was brought up by hand. The hungry and destitute situation of the infant orphan was duly reported by the workhouse authorities to the parish authorities. The parish authorities inquired with dignity of the workhouse authorities whether there was no female than domiciled in the workhouse who was in the situation to impart to Oliver Twist the consolation and nourishment of which he stood in need. The workhouse authorities replied with humility that there was not. Upon this, the parish authorities magnanimously and humanely resolved that Oliver should be farmed, or in other words, that he should be dispatched to a branch workhouse some three miles off, where twenty or thirty other juvenile offenders against the poor laws rolled about the floor all day, without the inconvenience of too much food or too much clothing, under the parental superintendence of an elderly female, who received the culprits at, and, for the consideration of a sevenpence halfpenny per small head per week. Sevenpence halfpenny's worth per week is a good round diet for a child. A great deal may be got for sevenpence halfpenny, quite enough to overload its stomach and make it uncomfortable. The elderly female was a woman of wisdom and experience. She knew what was good for children, and she had a very accurate perception of what was good for herself. So, she appropriated the greater part of the weekly stipend to her own use, and consigned the rising perpetual generation to even a shorter allowance than was originally provided for them, thereby finding in the lowest depths a deeper still, and proving herself a very great experimental philosopher. Everybody knows the story of another experimental philosopher who had a great theory about a horse being able to live without eating, and who demonstrated it so well that he had got his own horse down to a straw day and would unquestionably have rendered him a very spirited and rampacious animal on nothing at all if he had not died four and twenty hours before he was to have his first comfortable bait of beer. Unfortunately for the experimental philosophy of the female to whose protecting care Oliver Twist was delivered over. A similar result usually attended the operation of her system. For at the very moment when the child had contrived to exist upon the smallest possible portion of the weakest possible food, it did perseveringly happen in eight and a half cases out of ten, either that it sickened from wanton cold or fell into the fire from neglect, or got half smothered 
by accident. In any one of which cases, the miserable little being was usually summoned into another world, and there gathered to the fathers it had never known in this. Occasionally, when there was some more than usual interesting quests upon a parish child who had been overlooked in turning up a bedstead, or inadvertently scalded to death when there happened to be a washing, though the latter accident was very scarce. The jury would take it into their heads to ask troublesome questions, or the parishioners would rebelliously affix their signatures to a remonstrance. But these impertinences were speedily checked by the evidence of the surgeon and the testimony of the Badal, the former of whom had always opened the body and found nothing inside, which was very probable indeed, and the latter of whom invariably swore whatever the parish wanted, which was very self-devotional. Besides, the board made periodical pilgrimages to the farm, and always sent a beadle the day before to say they were going. The children were neat and clean to behold when they went. And what more would the people have? It cannot be expected that this system of farming would produce any very extraordinary or luxuriant crop. Oliver Twist's ninth birthday found him a pale, thin child, somewhat diminutive in stature and decidedly small in circumference. But nature, or inheritance, had implanted a good sturdy spirit in Oliver's breast. It had had plenty of room to expand, thanks to the spare diet of the establishment. And perhaps to this circumstance may be attributed his having any ninth birthday at all. To this, as it may, however, it was his ninth birthday, and he was keeping it in a cold cellar, with a select party of two young gentlemen, who, after participating with him in a sound trashing, had been locked up for atrociously presuming to the hungry, when Mrs. Mann, the good lady of the house, was unexpectedly startled by the apparition of Mr. Bumble beetle, straving to undo the wicket of the garden gate. Goodness gracious, is that you, Mr. Bumble, sir, said Mrs. Mann, thrusting her head out of the window in well-affected ecstasies of joy. Susan, take Oliver and them two brats upstairs and wash them directly. My heart alive, Mr. Bumble, how glad I am to see you, surely. Now, Mr. Bumble was a fat man, and a chalerate, so, instead of responding to this open-hearted salutation in a kindred spirit, he gave the little wicket a tremendous shake, and then bestowed upon it a kick which could have emanated from no leg but a beetle's. Lord only think, said Mrs. Mann, running out for the three boys had been removed by the
think of that, that I should have forgotten that the gate was bolted on the inside, on account of them dear children. Walk in, sir. Walk in. Pray, Mr. Bumble. Do, sir. Although this invitation was accompanied with a court, sir, that might have softened the heart of the church warden. It by no means mollified the bedroom. Do you think this respectful and proper conduct, Mrs. Mann? inquired Mr. Beadle, grasping his cane, to keep the parish officer awaiting at your garden gate, when they came here upon portual business with the portual orphans. Are you aware, Mrs. Mann, that you are, as I may say, a portual telegrade and a stipendry? I'm sure, Mr. Bumble, that I was only a telling one or two of the dear children, uh, as is so fond of you, that it was you a coming, replied Mrs. Mann with great humility. Mr. Bumble had a great idea for his oratorical powers and his importance. He had displayed the one and vindicated the other. He relaxed. Well, well, Mrs. Mann, he replied in a calmer tone. It may be, as you say, it may be. Lead the way in, Miss Mann, for I come on business and have something to say. Miss Mann ushered the bedroom into a small parlor with a brick floor, placed a seat for him, and officiously deposited his cocked hat and can on the table before him. Mr. Bumble wiped his forehead, where the perspiration which his walk had engendered, glanced complacently at the cocked hat and smiled. Yes, he smiled. Beetles are but men, and Mr. Bumble smiled. Now, don't be offended at what I'm going to say, observed Miss Mann, with captivating sweetness. You've had a long walk, you know, or I wouldn't mention it. Now, will you take a little drop of something, Mr. Bumble? Not a drop, nor a drop, said Mr. Bumble, waving his right hand in a dignified but placid manner. I think you will, said Miss Mann, who had noticed the tone of the refusal and the gesture that had been accompanied just a little drop with a little cold water and a lump of sugar mr bumble coughed now just a little drop now just a little drop said miss man persuasively what is it inquired the beetle why it's what i'm obligated to keep a little of in the house to put into the blessed infant's daffy when they aren't well. Mr. Bumble, replied Miss Mann, as she opened a corner cupboard and took down a bottle and glass. It's gin. I'll not deceive you, Mr. B. It's gin. Do you give the children daffy, Miss Mann? inquired Bumble, following with his eyes. The interesting process of mixing. 
bless him that I do, dear as it is, replied the nurse. I couldn't see him suffer before my very eyes, you know, sir. No, said Mr. Bumble approvingly. No, you could not. You are a humane woman, Miss Mann. Here she sat down the glass. I shall take early opportunity of mentioning it to the board, Miss Mann. He drew it towards him. You feel as a mother, Miss Mann. He stared at the gin and water. I, I drink your health with cheerfulness, Miss Mann, and he swallowed half of it. And now about business, said the Badal, taking out a leathern pocketbook. The child that was half-baptized Oliver Twist is nine years old today. Bless him, interposed Miss Mann, inflaming her left eye with a corner of her apron. And notwithstanding, he offered reward of ten pound, which was afterwards increased to twenty pound, notwithstanding the most superlative and, I may say, supernatural exorations on the part of the parish said Bumble. We have never been able to discover who was his father, or what was his mother's settlement, name, or condition. Miss Mann raised her hands in astonishment, but added, after a moment's reflection, how comes he to have any name at all then? The Badal drew himself up with great pride and said, I invented it. You, Mr. Bumble, I, Miss Mann, we named it our fumblings in alphabetical order. The last was a S, Swubble, I named him. It was a T, Twist, I named him. The next one comes will be Ewan, and the next Wilkins. I've got names ready made to the end of the alphabet and all the way throughout it again. Even when come to Z. Why, you're quite a literary character, sir, said Miss Mann. Well, well, said the Badal, evidently gratified with a compliment. Perhaps I may be, perhaps I may be, Miss Mann. He finished his gin and water and added, Oliver, being now too old to remain here, the board have determined to have him back in the house. I have come out myself to take him there, so let me see him at once. I'll fetch him directly, said Miss Mann, leaving the room for that purpose. Oliver, having had by this time as much of the outer coat of dirt which encrusted his face and hands removed, as could be scrubbed off in one washing, was led into the room by his benevolent protectress. Make a bow to the gentleman, Oliver, said Miss Mann. Oliver made a bow, which was divided between the babel on the chair and the cocked hat on the table. Will you go along with me, Oliver, said Mr. Badal 
in a majestic voice. Oliver was about to say that he would go along with anybody with great readiness when, glancing upward, he caught sight of Miss Mann, who had got behind the bailiff's chair and was shaking her fist at him with a furious countenance. He took the hint at once, for the fist had been too often impressed upon his body not to be deeply impressed upon his recollection. Will she go with me? inquired poor Oliver. No, she can't, replied Mr. Bumble, but she'll come to see you sometimes. This was no very great consolation to the child. Young as he was, however, he had sense enough to make a feint of feeling great regret at going away. It was no very difficult matter for the boy to call tears into his eyes. Hunger and resent, ill usage, are great assistance if you want to cry, and Oliver cried very naturally indeed. Miss Mann gave him a thousand embraces, and what Oliver wanted a great deal more, a piece of bread and butter. Lest he should seem too hungry when he got to the workhouse, with a slice of bread in his hand and a little brown cloth parish cap on his head. Oliver was then led away by Mr. Bumble from the wretched home where one kind word or look had never lightened the gloom of his infant years. And yet he burst into an agony of childish grief as the cottage gate closed after him, wretched as were the little companions in misery he was leaving behind. They were the only friends he had ever known, and the sense of his loneliness in the great wide world sank into the child's heart for the first time. Mr. Bumble walked on with long strides. Little Oliver, firmly grasping his gold-laced cuff, trotted beside him, inquiring at the end of every quarter of a mile whether they were nearly there. To these interrogations, Mr. Bumble returned very brief and snappish replies. For the temporary blandness which gin and water awakens in some bosoms had by this time evaporated, and he was once again a basil. Oliver had not been within the walls of the workhouse a quarter of an hour and had scarcely completed the demolition of a second slice of bread. When Mr. Bumble, who had handled him over to the care of the old woman, returned, and, telling him it was a bored night, informed him that the board had said he was to appear before it forthwith. Not having a very clearly defined notion of what a live board was, Oliver was rather astonished by this intelligence, and was not quite certain whether he ought to laugh or cry. He had no time to think about that matter, however, for Mr. Bumble gave him a tap on the head with his cane to wake him up, and another on the back to make him lively, and bidding him to follow, conducted him into a large whitewashed room 
where eight or ten fat gentlemen were sitting round a table. At the top of the table, seated in the armchair rather higher than the rest, was a particularly fat gentleman with a very round red face. Bow to the board, said Bumble. Oliver brushed away two or three tears that were lingering in his eyes, and seeing no board but the table, fortunately bowed to that. Watch the iron boy, said the gentleman in the highest chair. Oliver was frightened at the sight of so many gentlemen, which made him tremble, and the bathel gave him another tap behind, which made him cry. These two causes made him answer in a very low and hesitating voice, whereupon a gentleman in a white waistcoat said he was a fool, which was a capital way of raising his spirit and putting him quite at his ease. Boy, said the gentleman in the high chair, listen to me, you know you're an orphan, I suppose. What's that, sir? inquired poor Oliver. The boy is a fool, I thought it was, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. Hush, said the gentleman, who had spoken first. You know you've got no father or mother, and there you were brought up by the parish, don't you? Yes, sir, replied Oliver, weeping bitterly. What are you crying for? inquired the gentleman in the white waistcoat, and to be sure it was extraordinary, what could the boy be crying for? I hope you say your prayers every night, said another gentleman in a gruff voice, and pray for the people to feed you and take care of you like a Christian. The gentleman who spoke last was unconsciously right. It would have been very likely a Christian and a marvellously good Christian too, if Oliver had prayed for the people who fed and took care of him. But he didn't, because nobody had taught him. Well, you have come here to be educated, and taught useful trade, said the red-faced gentleman in the high chair. So you'll begin to pick oakum tomorrow morning at six o'clock, added the surly one in the white waistcoat. For the combination of both these blessings, in one simple process of picking oakum, Oliver bowed low by the direction of the bedel, and was then hurried away to a large ward, where, on a rough, hard bed, he sobbed himself to sleep. What a novel illustration of the tender law of England. They let the popers go to sleep. Poor Oliver. He little thought, as he laid sleeping in his happy unconsciousness of all around him, that the board had that very day arrived at a discussion which would exercise the most material influence over all his future fortunes. But they had, and this was it. The members of the board were very sage, deep, philosophical men, and when they came to turn their attention to the workhouse, they found out at once 
that ordinary folk would never have discovered that poor people liked it. It was a regular place of public entertainment for the poorer classes, a tavern where there was nothing to pay, a public breakfast, dinner, tea and supper all year round, a brick and mortar asylum where it was all play and no work. Ahoy, said the board, looking very knowing. We are all fellows to set this to rights. We'll stop it all in no time. So they established a rule that all poor people should have alternative for they who would compound nobody, not they, for being starved by a gradual process in the house or by a quick one out of it. With this view, they contracted with the waterworks to lay on an unlimited supply of water and with a corn factory to supply periodically small quantities of oatmeal and issued three meals of thin gruel a day with an onion twice a week and half robe on Sundays. They made a great many other wise and humane regulations having reference to the ladies, which is not necessary to repeat, kindly undertook to divorce poor married people in consequence of the great expense of a suit in the doctor's commons, and instead of compelling a man to support his family as they had theretofore done, took his family away from him and made him a bachelor. There is no saying how many applicants for relief under these last two heads might have started up in all classes of society if it had not been coupled with a workhouse. But the board were long-headed men and had provided for this difficulty. The relief was inseparable from the workhouse and the gruel, and that frightened people. For the first six months after Oliver Twist was removed, the system was in full operation. It was rather expensive at first, in consequence of the increase in the undertaker's bill, and the necessity of taking in the clothes of all the paupers, which fluttered loosely on their wasted shrunken forms after a week or two's gruel. But the number of workhouse inmates got thin as well as the popers, and the board were in ecstasies. The room in which the boys were fed was a large stone hall with a copper at the end, out of which the master, dressed in an apron for the purpose, and assisted by one or two women, ladled the gruel at mealtimes. For this festive composition each boy had one pouring, and no more, except on occasions of great public rejoicing, when he had two ounces and quarter of bread besides. The bowls never wanted washing. The boys polished them with their spoons till they shone again, and when they had performed this operation, which never took very long 
the spoon being nearly as large as the bowl, they would sit staring at the copper with such eager eyes as if they could have devoured the very bricks of which it was composed, employing themselves, meanwhile, in sucking their fingers most assiduously, with a view of catching up any stray splashes of gruel that might have been cast thereon. Boys have generally excellent appetites. Oliver Twist and his companions suffered the torture of slow starvation for three months. At last, they got so ferocious and wild with hunger that one boy, who was tall for his age and hadn't been used to that sort of thing, for his father had kept a small cook shop, hinted darkly to his companions that unless he had another basin of gruel per dime, he was afraid he might some night happen to eat the boy who slept next to him, who happened to be a weakly youth of tender age. He had a wild, hungry eye, and they implicitly believed him. A council was held. Lots were cast who should walk up to the master after supper that evening and ask for more, and it fell to Oliver Twist. The evening arrived. The boys took their places. The master, in his cook's uniform, stationed himself at the cupboard. His poker assistants ranged themselves behind him. The gruel was served out, and the long gaze was set over the short comments. The gruel disappeared. The boys whispered each other and winked at Oliver, while his next neighbors nudged him child that he was. He was desperate with hunger and reckless with misery. He rose from the table and advancing to the master, basin and spoon in hand, said, somewhat alarmed at his own temerity, please sir, I want some more. The master was a fat, healthy man, but he turned very pale. He gazed in stupefied astonishment to the small rebel for some seconds, and then clung for support to the copper. The assistants were paralyzed with wonder, the boys with fear. What? said the master at length, in a faint voice. Please, sir, replied Oliver, I want some more. The master aimed a blow at Oliver's head with the ladle, pinioned him in his arm, and shrieked aloud for the basil. The board were sitting in solemn conclave when Mr. Bumble rushed into the room with great excitement, and addressing the gentleman in the high chair said, Mr. Limpkins, I beg your pardon, sir, Oliver Twist has asked for more. There was, there was a general start. Horror was depicted on everyone's conscience. For more, said Mr. Lipkins. Compose yourself, Bumble, and answer me distinctly. Do I understand that he asked for more after he had eaten the supper 
allotted by the dietary. He did so, replied Bumble. The boy will be hung, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. I know that boy will be hung. Nobody controverted the prophetic gentleman's opinion. An animated discussion took place. Oliver was ordered into instant confinement, and a bill was next morning passed on the outside of the gate, offering a reward of five pounds to anybody who would take Oliver Twist off the hands of the parish. In other words, five pounds and Oliver Twist were offered to any man or woman who wanted an apprentice to any trade, business or calling. I never was more convinced of anything in my life, said the gentleman in the white coat, as he knocked on the gate and read the bill the next morning. I never was more convinced of anything in my life than I am that that boy will be hung. As I propose to show in the sequel, whether the white-coated gentleman was right or not, I should perhaps mar the interest of this narrative, supposing it to possess any at all. If I venture to hint just yet, whether the life of Oliver Twist had this violent determination or no.